Hello and welcome to the Optimus Wellbeing Podcast. In this podcast series, we will be speaking to various educational professionals and people with lived experience to discuss a range of topics that are affecting the mental health and well-being of teachers and pupils. We will also be looking at practical strategies that can be used to improve well-being in schools. In today's episode, we'll be looking at teacher mental health and well-being, a topic that seems to constantly be at the forefront of everyone's minds. The most recent Teacher Wellbeing Index published last year found that 67% of education professionals describe themselves as stressed, and over a third have experienced mental health issues in the past academic year. So in today's episode, I wanted to find out what is causing these worrying statistics and what can be done to improve teacher wellbeing. Joining us today is Therese Hoyle, John Viner and Kelly Hannigan. Therese has over 25 years teaching experience in both mainstream and special schools and now advises schools on well-being, behaviour and leadership. John served for 28 years as a primary head teacher and is now a writer and teacher trainer, whilst Kelly is the well-being lead at Leicester Heath Primary School and has spent the past 13 years of her career passionately promoting the importance of mental wellness for all stakeholders in education. Therese, what are some of the main causes of poor teacher mental health and well-being? Some of the main causes of poor teacher health and mental well-being I see in schools, Charlie, are the ever-changing landscape. Things are regularly changing in education and they are in other organisations. But what happens in our schools and has happened recently is we are facing a lack of support in terms of budgets are being cut. Budget cuts impact us in so many ways. It impacts us in terms of lacking resources. It impacts in terms of some staff having to be made redundant. It impacts um, head teacher in terms of their stress. And um, there are, you know, in terms of budget cuts, it impacts the support for our SEND children. And that's going to affect the mental health and well-being of of staff members ultimately. Um, We've recently got new Ofsted framework, we've got the new curriculum. Um, So those are uh, new things that we have to get our head around and uh, nobody likes change. It's good that we've got change, it's important that we have change, but we seem to be getting a lot of change at the same time. So that's not easy. Um, And I often think of us climbing an education mountain um, where we get snowed under by paperwork. And I know for myself as a teacher, um, I just, you know, all those years ago, um, I just remember no sooner had I got through one lot of paperwork than I had to get through the next lot. And so there was never an ending. Um, There are things we can do about that, um, about creating markers where we do stop and we do celebrate when we come to the end of something Um, but our tendency as teachers sometimes can be to just think oh you know something else something else something else Um, and as we're climbing this education mountain I also see as you know sometimes we get ambushed by parents Um, they leap out of prickly bushes and they um, challenge us about something that we haven't done or a newsletter they haven't received you know that can be difficult um, or a behavior you know some maybe there's a child in the class who's affecting their child in terms of their learning um, there can also be behavior problems in in the classroom um, and that 
is going to affect teacher well-being and there's you know another aspect of us climbing this mountain where we have the media constantly I feel like battling us um, they're so negative about education so negative about teachers um, we're not treated as professionals uh, it's really hard for teachers and staff in schools to hear the negative comments about us as a profession when actually we are doing the very best that we can do. As a result of poor mental health among staff, schools are facing a recruitment and retention crisis. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Um, there's some statistics that I've got that in a recent health report by the Education Support Partnership of Education Professionals, 84% that said that they'd suffered some form of mental health problem in the last two years. And one in four teachers will quit the profession within the first five years of teaching, which is a really sad statistic. That's our new NQT teachers um, who are leaving. And I know for myself, I um, when I was in school about four years ago, there was a, a new N an NQT and I should think I should come to the end of her year. And she just said, you know, she was tired. She was fed up. Um, it wasn't the job she thought she was going into. The hours she was working were ridiculously long hours. She was in school at 6.30, leaving at 6. Um, and just, yeah, she was becoming burnt out. So, you know, we really have to consider taking care of our young NQTs and it being attractive for them to stay in the profession. We need them. Um, our children need them. It's really important. I think that most people would agree that to tackle poor well-being in schools, we need to be implementing a culture of whole school well-being. John, who's responsible for this? Ultimately, it's the head teacher's responsibility. Um, I, I've run three pretty big primary schools and I had good senior leadership teams um, and we were, I think, doing a pretty good job. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was always the head teacher that people looked to. However much I'd want my deputies to get involved and they did get involved, it was still the head teacher um, who was regarded as the person that people wanted affirmation from. Um, Andy Buck uh, talks about discretionary effort, the, the, thing, the stuff that helps with staff engagement, the thing that makes them go the extra mile, if you like. And he makes a really good point, um, and it's this, it's, it's, it's not pay that makes people work harder. Uh, in fact, that came out at the bottom of the research pile. Um, it wasn't even managing workload, although that's important, as we know. The two biggest things that his research suggests has the biggest impact on employee engagement are the culture of the organisation and the characteristics of my direct line manager. So that shows everybody in the chain is important, of course, but in setting the culture that has to come from the top. Unfortunately, I think we've become so distracted by chasing standards and progress that sometimes leaders lose sight of the people and it's the people that bring it about. And this can lead to a culture that's focused on staff performance, on performance targets, on rewards. And, you know, to some extent on, on punishments, we don't call it that, but we might call it capability procedures. 
And that leads to a culture that is actually less productive and can be toxic. In your experiences, Kelly, has it ultimately been your senior leaders that have helped to create this culture? As a wellbeing lead, I would say um, what's worked really well for me is being able to engage leadership in the process. I think that's key to any successful process in embedding a whole school approach to wellbeing. Um, when I first arrived at my current school, the school was in a really difficult space. They'd recently gone through an Ofsted where the outcome um, was that the school was put into special measures. So as you can imagine, morale was low, um, staff were burnt out um, and felt disengaged. The children's behaviour was, was quite negative and, and they were unreachable. Uh, the parents were quite frustrated and, and at times even angry. So I walked into a school where relationships were broken um, and I feel that I was able to come in as an outside individual, as a service provider, and give a real honest account of what my experience was like in understanding the school culture. That then led me on to um, having an honest conversation with the head teacher, who was fully embraced and on board in the importance of wellbeing in education. And we had very similar values and beliefs in the sense that without looking after the mental health of stakeholders, we wasn't going to get the tangible outcomes that was needed for success and also to give us the space to be able to grow um, into being a school that provided a real good quality and purposeful education. So if heads are ultimately responsible for creating this culture of whole school wellbeing, what should this look like in practice? Um, in a way, culture is what we do and climate is how it feels. So the function of leadership in creating discretionary effort and staff engagement is a combination of what we do and how it feels. So as a school leader, I need to be aware of, 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 of what it feels like on the ground. And sometimes that's a good role that um, my senior leadership team can play because in a way they're at that interface. I worked with a deputy who I have to say when she said she was going to retire I cheered um, quietly uh, um, because she used to come to me and say oh, do you know what they're saying now? And Okay that was a fairly negative thing but do you know what we need to hear what they're saying now and if we've got a supportive culture where it's okay to talk to each other, then we're doing two things. The first thing is we're creating the openness and people don't feel that they can't say things. And the second thing we're doing is we're supporting people's well-being by doing that. So one is what we do, the culture, we're supporting people's well-being. And the climate, how it feels is this is a place where I can talk to people. And talking to people is absolutely key. And it's that that leads to discretionary effort and the engagement. And it's that that leads to performance. And of course, we still have to manage um, uh, the performance of our colleagues. Of course, that's part of the whole part package. But it's how we manage it, how we develop people. It's about vision. It's about pedagogy. It's about our own behavior. It's about the expectations we have of our staff and our colleagues. Um, 
So it isn't a quick answer. I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I can't say it looks like this, but it's something that we build up over time. As you just said, John, you're a head teacher that complain when staff brought up their issues or problems. And clearly this isn't a way to make staff feel appreciated. So how can leaders make their staff feel valued? <laughs> Look, this has to be a personal choice. Um, leaders have to recognise it's part of the human condition to, to want recognition. Um, and we all want that. Um, I, I once thought it was a good idea <laughs> um, to reward teachers with a day off during which I take their class. But it was a nightmare. I had 24 classes and I wasn't able to do the job I needed to do because I was responsible for not very often, but for going and teaching these classes, and I had a job to do. I think the staff appreciated it in principle, but I was glad when the year was over, and I'm not sure that all the staff trusted me to teach as well as they did. So we can do stuff, but the important thing is doing stuff. It's not as complicated as that. I know colleagues that leave little notes on their staff's desk saying, hey, I really like the way you did this or giving them a card saying, thanks for doing this, it was really useful. Um, when I was running a, a, a very challenging coastal school, which we recently lifted out of special measures, I used to make a point six times a year of commending three or four individuals to governors. And then the chair would write them a personal letter of thanks. It didn't cost us anything. And it was amazing to see how much those little tokens were valued. People would put them in their personal development portfolio. People would say how much they appreciated being appreciated. Yeah, this wasn't very difficult to do, was it? It's a practice that as a chair of gardeners, I still try to implement because it's the little things that make the difference. Um, these days, I, I'm a teacher trainer, and one of my trainees was telling me about her second school placement. She was walking along a corridor when the head stopped her. Come and have a snack and a drink, he said, ushering her into the hall. And it was set up with cakes and pastries and bottles of fizz. So what's the occasion, she asked. Oh, there's no occasion, Sal, replied the head. I'm saying thank you to my wonderful staff. I like to do this every so often. Now, no wonder this tough London school is a happy place where teachers enjoy their work and go the extra mile. Contrast this, if you will, with a good idea, but one that went wrong. There was an end-of-term bash put on by a local secondary school to me. It seemed a good idea. There were sausage rolls, there were pastries, and a vegetarian option. And the vegetarian option was bring your own. There was also a non-alcoholic option, which was bring your own. And the impact? Angry colleagues who felt devalued, patronised and offended. It's a tight rope that we tread and we need to make sure that we tread it lightly and carefully. It's easy to talk about workload. It's easy to say that we need to reduce it. But saying that we need to reduce workload is not the same as reducing it. The DfE published a toolkit to help schools identify how workload reductions could be made. And what seems to upset most teachers at the chalk phase are actually the bits of work that don't have uh, a direct impact on their teaching. 
I still come across schools that expect teachers to plan lessons in detail and then share that planning with leaders before they teach the lessons. What on earth are we doing when we expect our colleagues to do that? Since the turn of the, of the millennium, lesson planning has got a lot slicker and they're a lot, a, a lot smarter. And an effective teacher is going to be clear about the learning and about how to get there. So does she really need to write out a complex plan that she might not stick to anyway? I ran this challenge in coastal school. It was deeply in special measures. Teaching was patchy. Sure, we needed to make sure that planning was done and done well. But once we'd established our expectations, we said to staff, look, we expect your planning to include certain key elements, but we don't care how you present it. And we're not going to police it. It's the outcomes that we're interested in. And we'll hold you to account for the outcomes. The inputs are up to you. And this is empowering because staff know that they are not only valued, but they are trusted. As, as Andy Buck showed, this contributes to discretionary effort. And it helps build that culture of trust. Therese, have you seen any good practice in schools for making staff feel appreciated? Um, yes, it's, um, because I work on the Wellbeing Award for schools, I see lots of amazing practice. Um, plus, on my courses, I suggest lots of ideas that um, schools can use. So the things that I, I see work really well, it's about creating a whole school culture where people feel safe, they feel secure, they feel valued. Um, and some schools aren't like that. And that's where teachers end up exhausted and burnt out. Um, a starting point I look at is, first of all, thinking about when you go in first thing in the morning, um, are you smiling at people around you? Are you saying hello? Um, it's the simple things that people really like. They, you know, just saying hello. I remember working in a school and where I'd walk past somebody and say hello and just be ignored. Um, you know that's not really very nice um i also remember being in a school where i worked with an amazing deputy head who every morning would walk around everyone's classroom and she would say good morning ask me how i was um she'd look at my newest display or whatever i done and was going on in my classroom and she would notice the good things that i was doing and it was so important to actually receive some positive feedback. Other things that I've seen work really well are um, secret squirrels. So schools adopt um, a, a system whereby everybody's name is put in a hat and then you pull out somebody's name. And for that term, you make them cups of tea. You might say, oh, can I do your, your playtime duty? Um, you might just bring them an apple or a chocolate biscuit on a Friday, um, but you think about them, you check in with them, see how they're doing. And um, it's just a lovely way to have somebody there for you who's on your team. I often run circle meetings, so that's about developing a communication system in the school where we can bring any issues that we've got and collectively we talk about them and we bring them out into the open, we problem solve and we come up with solutions. And with circle meetings, it can be a great time for us to celebrate successes. So as we've just heard, there's plenty of things that schools can be doing to make sure that staff are feeling appreciated. 
and felt like their well-being is really being prioritised. But what about looking after ourselves? Is there anything that teachers can be doing to look after their own well-being? I often think about when we see the air, an airline steward or stewardess, um, they often say to us, please put on your oxygen mask before you help others. And if we don't put on our own oxygen mask, then we can't help our children. So it's a good metaphor for us thinking about, you know, am I putting on my own oxygen mask? Am I taking care of myself? Um, because if we don't take care of ourselves, um, that's where we can end up in burnout and exhausted and not able to give the best, our best to our children. Um, and, and that's our personal responsibility. So we can have all these facts and figures and these statistics, but actually there is a personal responsibility for us as individuals to really be thinking about our own well-being and our own needs and to create those moments. Uh, something else I also see us struggling within schools, and I'm a typical example of this, um, you know, the inability to say no. We do need to learn to say no, not now. I can do it next week or next month, um, but not now, because actually your workload, you, you know, you've got enough on. And that's something we can find very difficult to say in education. Other things that we need to think about are email boundaries. Staff are often getting too many emails and they're getting them at weekends and late into the night. Um, it's not okay. Some head teachers I work with have really good email boundaries in terms of there's a cutoff. So there's a cutoff, there's no emails that go out at weekends and there's none after 6pm. Kelly, do you have any practical tips for safeguarding our own wellbeing? I'd say my key practical tips for um, safeguarding your own well-being is to know yourself really well and capture the moments when you notice your behaviours change. So it could be that your sleep patterns are different. It could be that your eating patterns change. Um, it could be that you're um, less productive in your work. Um, tasks are taking longer to do. And I think by truly knowing yourself and understanding when you're not functioning at your best, it's really important to understand what you can do in order to protect yourself. So my key tips um, for looking after your well-being would be um, making sure you get enough sleep, looking after your diet, eating lots of healthy food, taking time out of education, so spending time with people who don't work in education. I think that's vital so you don't end up in conversations around work. Connect with social activities that you love um, and ensuring that you have work-free moments or days or nights within your week so that you're not... Um, working towards burnout. I think it's really vital um, to have work-life balance in order to be really effective in your practice. So finally, what should you do if you're working in a setting where you feel that your well-being isn't being prioritised? I think the environment that you work in has a huge impact on your own emotional health. Um, I've experienced working in both the most positive environments where my well-being um, has been greatly improved. Um, but then I've also had the experience of working in a really negative, toxic environment where I've even questioned whether I should stay in the profession. I think it's really important to know what your values and beliefs are and make sure that you match them 
um, sensibly with the schools that you choose to work in. I think that's key to success in having a, a long-standing successful career. In my experience of working in a negative culture, I remember questioning my own mental health and at times feeling that it was my fault. Um, I was working in a space where leadership had a, a very demographic review on how education um, should be. There was that top-down leadership behaviour um, and I, at times I was told that I needed to toughen up. Um, my experience is that I've trained to work um, relationally with, with others. So I always find it beneficial to connect with people and understand and empathize with their challenge um, and give them solution focused approaches where they're able to coach themselves in making better decisions and that also empowers them as well. I think if anyone experiences or questions whether they're working in the right environment, I think a question that they need to ask themselves is, are they happy going to work most of the time? And does their work give them a sense of fulfillment? And if the answer is no, I think they seriously need to, to rethink whether they're working in the right environment because that will really impact their mental health and well-being in a negative way. Teachers are vital in shaping the way the future looks um, for young people. So we have to be really well um, and we have to practice self-care and able to do that job. And a big part of that process is matching the right environment with your skill sets um, and your beliefs. A massive thank you to Kelly, John and Therese for joining us. I think for me, the most important things to take away from today's episode are that teachers need to feel like what they are doing is being really valued. Staff need to know that their time and effort is being recognised. And if you don't have a team around you that makes you feel like what you're doing is really worth the hard work and dedication, then you need to take a look at the school you're working in and decide whether it's the right place for you. But it's not just about other people. We all have a personal responsibility to look after ourselves, know our limits and learn how to say no. I think that most people go into the profession because they're really passionate about their subject and they want to make a difference in a child's life. But teachers won't be able to do this if they don't look after their own well-being. Another way in which your school can champion positive mental health is by taking part in the Optimist Wellbeing Award for schools. Over 1,000 schools have taken part in the award benefiting the lives of thousands of pupils, families and staff across the country. To find out more about the Optimist Wellbeing Award for Schools, go to awardplace.co.uk forward slash award forward slash WAS.